Back in June of 2013, our family was on the West Coast. We were in California um, camping, national parks on the West Coast, and we had arrived in Yosemite National Park, and Katie and I were going to do this hike. This is Half Dome behind me. We were going to actually hike the backside of Half Dome, and we decided to make it a two-day hike so we could hit Half Dome on sunrise. So we packed up. We left in late morning past Vernal Falls, past um, some other falls, and we got to our campsite, little Yosemite campsite, set up our campsite. Early the next morning, we were on the, on the way at 4 o'clock. Now, it's pretty dark at 4 o'clock, and so we were having to use flashlights to make sure we didn't get lost. And it was kind of creepy, to tell you the truth, because there was a bear in our campsite, so we knew there were a bear in the area, so we were trying to make a lot of noise. And so we got to this one place on our trail. It was about 40 minutes into our hike that morning, and I couldn't um, find a half-dome trail sign. It had a lot of other half, it had a lot of other trail signs that were pointing in different directions, and I kind of um, panicked. I teased Katie as if she did, but but I kind of lost it. Panicked, it's Katie. We better quickly run back to the beginning and retrace our steps, and we could find it. And she just said, "Dad, wait," and just got the light. And we started retracing our steps, going back, and then we found where the trail turned off to the left, and we found a sign for Half Dome. Well, sometimes you have to go back so you could go forward. So it's my desire tonight that we would come to this passage in Colossians, but we don't come to this passage in Colossians to discover what we have never known, but rather we want to remind ourselves of what we must never forget. We want to come into this passage and to look at it and to realize what God has done for us. You know, sometimes people think that they need something new in their life. You know, I need something new in my marriage. Or maybe I need something new in, in my golf swing, which might be the case. Or I might need something new in business. Or maybe we need something new in our church. But oftentimes it really is just getting back to the basics. That's really what we need in our lives. So I want us to be reminded tonight of the basics and what we need to get back to. So if I were to put into one idea what I'm after tonight, I'm after this. May our holy identity in Christ lead to holy behavior for Christ. And who we are in our position vertically should impact how we live practically, horizontally. So I want to really remind us of three things as we step into this Colossians passage. First thing we must never forget is our identity. What is it grounded in? It is grounded in the work of Christ. Paul zooms in on the first couple words in Colossians 3 verse 12, and he wants to remind the Colossians believers who they are. And he writes, then therefore, or then, put on then. The then really is kicking us back into the context, and you could look at it more later, but verses 5 to 9, he's saying to put off. But here he's going to remind them what they need to put on in light of who they are as he mentioned in verses 10 and 11, who you are. This is what you now need to, to put on. So Paul is listing some, some actions, but before he gets to the actions of what they need to put on in their life, he pauses for a moment, if you please, and he reminds them of who they are. And this is an awesome word. This first word, he says, put on then, but he pauses, as God's chosen. He reminds the Colossian believers that you are chosen ones, you are select ones, you are elect ones. This is what God wants us to remember, child of God. Who are you? Who am I in Christ? I am chosen, chosen of God. I am selected of him. Really, that's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is God 
pursuing man. God's coming after man. God is chasing after man. Man doesn't desire God, but God came after man. We see this in Adam and Eve in the story of, of the garden. After they had sinned, and God came to man. And immediately in his conversation with them, he reminds them of Genesis 3.15, or I should say he informs them of Genesis 3.15. This is the plan that I have, that I'm going to come after man. I'm some, one day going to send one that will make things right between us. He will crush the head of the serpent. Natural man is dead spiritually, but God pursued man. So God says, you are my chosen one. You are holy. We're reminded another prison epistle of Paul's in Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. That's positionally. That this should be our position. This is who we are. So he's writing to these believers and he's reminding them, you are chosen. You are holy ones. He then writes, holy. Holy and beloved is really going off of the idea of, of their chosen. Because you're chosen, this is now what God has done in your life. He's made you holy. It means to be separate to God, to be set apart to God. So these clashing believers, he's reminding them, he's, he's calling them to action in chapters 3 and 4 in light of who Christ is in his supremacy. We need to submit to Christ, and this is who you are. You are, you are a holy one before him. You know, this language reminds us of what really Paul spoke to of the, um, the children of Israel. I'm, I'm sorry, not Paul. Uh, Moses writing of the children of Israel and their position as God said in verse 6, that you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Children of Israel, just as they were chosen, just as they were holy before God, a people set apart to God, so we are in the New Testament when we put our faith and trust in God that God looks at us as chosen and part of that we're holy. We're set apart to Him. We have this position that we belong to Him. And so the cry in this passage is, may my position in Christ impact my practice for Christ. This is who I am. This is how I must live. But then he lists also beloved. Um, God's love to us, you know, it wasn't based that he looked down and he said, wow, that Dave Crompton is really going to be a special prize. He's going to be so, I just have to. No, he didn't look and see anything in me worthy. It was his love. It was his part that completely reached out to me. He didn't see a response of mine prior to down the road of, of time. He saw me choosing him because he had chosen me. This word beloved is an awesome word, and it's really laced throughout this passage. In fact, we'll list it as one of the virtues, um, the, same he, the same Greek word, um, that we are loved because we are beloved. And it'll be really the virtues, the heart of the virtues. So who are we? We saw the testimonies and reminding of what God has done in some of the lives of our church family. But who are you in Jesus Christ? What is your identity? When you think about what defines you, what describes you, what comes to mind? I mean, who are you? You know, what does our culture say? You know, who are, who are people? You see bumper stickers? We used to see them a lot on Long Island, and maybe I stopped looking for them, but I think they're around here too. Hey, I'm the proud parent of so-and-so. My kid is an honor student at so-and-so school. So some people get their identity in their children. Well, my child is a is an honor student, or my child goes to so-and-so school, or my child is a, 
a doctor, did I tell you that? Or whatever the profession may be. Um, but is there identity in our children? Some people will get their identity in, in earthly possessions. It'll get it in, in um, success. They may say, um, let me tell you about where I live. I live in um, Canterbury Estates. You know, I live in this beautiful powder mill estates. I live in this place that, uh, you know, pretty expensive homes. And did, did, I, did I show you my picture of my home? Or maybe it'll be their position. Yeah, I happen to be um, CEO. I remember meeting a, a guy in Long Island once when I went to a clothing store. And um, he didn't know I was a pastor. And um, I said, what's your name? And he says, I'm Deacon so-and-so. Well, it was in his title. He was Deacon. <laughs> um, I mean, that's a servant. That's a beautiful title, but maybe not one we're prone to call ourselves. But what, what defines you? What identifies you? You know, sometimes people allow tragic events to identify them. Well, this, um, this happened to me as a child, or this happened to me. My, my, um, my spouse walked out on me, and so that's who I am. Or maybe um, I, I was an addict, and that's who I am. Is that who we are? God's word says no, that we are chosen, that we are holy ones, that we're beloved. This is our identity. This is who we are. It's not in any of these temporal things. And so Paul, having established that, then flows in verses 12 through 16, and he stresses our unity. Because of who we are, he now hits home unity. This is how we're to behave. This is how we're to live. So really, I see 12 through 16 flowing together, and he just keeps pounding this idea of unity. He says, put on. It's like I put on this jacket, even though it's a little warm in here. And uh, we, put on, we put on clothes. He says, put on. This is what we're to put on as who? As followers of Jesus Christ. This is who we're to put on as the elect. This is what we're to put on as the, as the beloved. This is what we're to put on as the holy ones. This is what our practice is to be. My position in Christ is to impact my, my practice for Christ. How I live is to follow because of who I am. And so he says, put on. But notice in the passage I read, it's just it's, it's chock full of unity terminology. You see verse 13, bearing with one another. Verse 14, binds everything together. Verse um, 15, in one body. Verse 16, teaching and admonishing one another. So he's driving this oneness point home that we're, we're one. So, so there's no boasting that, you know, I'm kind of out of your leg. You might say that I'm, Kind of like with all my success, I'm the Ivy League of people. No, we're, we're one league together. And that's the beauty of verse 11 that he hit. You know, there's, there's no, there's race and religion. We're, we're one in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul wants to hit home and quickly in some of these, um, these virtues in verse 12. Um, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You know, our compassionate hearts that we're to be people that, are, that, are, that have pity. And he uses the same word as used in Matthew chapter 9 that describes Jesus Christ in verse 36. When he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them. So that's what's to, describe, to define our action, that we look at people and we have compassion for them. That we're not filled with the virtues that are listed back in verse 8, these evil vices. This is what defines us, that, that we're anger and wrath and malice. But we have compassionate hearts as we look to people. And then he says we're to be individuals that are kind that because God has been kind to us. As we heard in those four testimonies, we're to be kind 
or people that, that are humble. You know, humility. Humility is the antidote for the self-love that poisons relationships. Humility is the vaccine that um, destroys self-destruction. It's a vaccine that gives us that, that virtue and that strength and that unity together. So gentleness and patience. So it just keeps driving home that we have been transformed vertically and we're to be transformed horizontally in how we live. But he moves on and he keeps stressing virtues and I think we see patience in verse 13. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So after listing all of these virtues... He now pauses and says, you know, we, we need to bear with one another. He talks about patience. It's that idea to endure, to hold in spite of persecution, threats and injury, not to retaliate and all that's coming against us, that we are to be a people that will endure, that we're going to bear with one another, that we're going to even practice, he says, forgiving each other. And this word forgiven is used back in Colossians 2 verse 13 when he talks about what God has done for us, that he's forgiven us of our trespasses by canceling the record. So he keeps driving home this point. Who are you in Christ? Has God forgiven you vertically? Then how are we to act horizontally? How are we to care for one another? What is to be our response to people? Are we not to be a people that's forgiving? Are we not to be a people that shows kindness? Maybe one of the greatest stories that I've ever heard uh, goes back to 70 years ago, but you've heard it probably. Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom and her family were hiding Dutch Jews during World War II. And they were eventually found out or, or um, ratted on by their neighbors, and they were sent off to a concentration camp. And Betsy, her sister, Corey's sister and father, died in the concentration camp. And Betsy said to, to Corey, Corey, tell what we have learned in this concentration camp, that we have to practice forgiveness. And so she spent the next three decades of her life traveling around, sharing her story and how she learned forgiveness. Well, it was really put to the test in the church in Munich in 1947 when she was speaking this one day, and after the church service, a man approached her. She immediately knew who this man was. He was one of the guards that was vicious, that was brutal at Ravensbrook. And this man would carry around this leather whip on his, um, on his belt and just degrading and horrific. He came up to her and he said, Fraulein, I was so nice to hear the message that you talked about, about forgiveness and, and experiencing God's forgiveness. I want to know from you as I was a guard there, will you forgive me? And he extended his hand. And she talked in her comment in her book. She just struggled to get her hand out. She was fumbling in her purse because flashback was coming of all of the clothes in the middle of the room and all of the pile of shoes and, and the women having to walk in the shower naked past this man and the, the embarrassment and the mockery that came from this wicked person and the abuse that he did to, to, to people. And then he went on and he said, Furlong, I want you to know that I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I've experienced that forgiveness and I want to know that will you forgive me? And he extended his hand out again. And she said, I would just pray, God, I know that, that forgiveness isn't, isn't an emotion. God, it's a will. Help me to choose to forgive right now. And God, you give me the emotion. 
And so she lifted her hand, and when their hands met, she records in her story how she just felt this energy flow through her. And she said, I just felt the love of God just coursing through my body to love this man. And we cried as we shook hands that I could forgive. I, one that was abused in the presence of this man, could forgive such a man. That's the idea here that we're, 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 we're coming at, that God can change whatever horrific beast we were and are and change us into his Christ-like image and it's to pound home what we're to put on. We're to put on enduring with one another. We're to put on love and patience with one another as we care for one another. But here's the all, all, awesome example or comparison as we see as the Lord is really in the, we're looking in the Greek, it's comparing two things. As you have been forgiving, you're, we are to forgive as the Lord forgave us. It's sweet to hear the testimonies that we heard earlier that God forgave an incredible debt that we could never forgive. And here is now God commanding us to go forth and forgive others. Again, this whole book is, is filled with terminology and reminder of what Christ has done for us. Now he's driving home what we are to do for others. You know, if we're willing to live out the love of Christ, what will the result be? It will be unity. It'll be unity in our relationships. You know, when we keep, when one keeps a scorecard of what their spouse has done wrong and brings it up on a certain time, well, let me remind you, and I just happened to have a list here of back here 15 years ago in seven months and three days, this is what you said. When there is such a scorecard that's kept, then we'll never be able to get harmony and unity in our relationship because we're continually remembering verse eight is taking place, anger, wrath, and malice. Or teens, when a friend betrays you, oh man, it just boils. You can't believe that you told them in confidence and they went and told people or something that you shared that should never have been shared. What do you do? Should I just not leave it at teens? What do we do as adults? Do we try to get even? But here's God teaching us forgiveness, how we're to live and act towards one another, not to keep a scorecard, not to get to the point where we're in marriage, we're screaming and cussing and yelling at each other, where we're able to forgive, or we're, we're, we're tolerant of one another as we keep striving to become putting on Christ in our lives, putting on that, that new identity, putting on that heart of transformation. Well, Paul continues on in verse 14. And above all, these put on love. You see how the whole passage, that's who we are. We're beloved. He described that position. Chosen, holy, and beloved. That's our identification. And now he's telling us how we're to love and care for one another. And now he says here in verse 14, and above all these, put on love. He's describing love as the thing that binds together. This is what we ought to be putting on. This is the perfect love. This is the bind, this is the bind so to speak. So he's, he's calling for our behavior in Christ to match who we are, or for Christ to match who we are in Christ. So he says, put on above all of these, the things that he just talked about, it really all funnels right down into this one, love. This is what we're to put on on top of everything. So if someone has an issue that it will just bind us together, it really could be translated literally, which is a bond of perfection. This bond of maturity. Love is this bond that will cause us to be united. Love is this bond that will cause us to be, be brought together. It won't allow um, splits 
It won't allow splits in relationships. It won't allow splits in a church, church body. So he's calling for our behavior for Christ to match our identity in Christ. You know, we look in our, our country, in our world, but let's keep it out of our country. There's a lot of division right now. There's a lot of stress going on. Um, it's a whole other subject that I won't address now, but talking of that young man in Georgia um, and, the, and the shameful shooting and the cover-up and all of that. But I want to talk about the coronavirus. We are a lot of stress. We are a lot of discussion going on. Appreciate the article that, that Pastor Lawrence sent to the pastors. And I want to read it, just a, a couple sentences of this. It talks about, church, don't let the coronavirus divide you. Because we're having a lot of discussion, okay, when, when to open up the church, um, I mean, when to open up the country, do we open it up because of the economy, or do we open up the country for the sake of physical well-being, and then we have the president weighing in, which we love what he said, that is, we need prayers more than ever in our country, it's time to open up the church. Here's a, here's a quote from this article. As if the logistical details weren't challenging enough. How to maintain social distance, limit crowd size, whether or not to require masks, to sing or not to sing, and so on, is fraught with potential for division. Some will be eager to meet in person and impatient to wait much longer. Others will insist it's unwise to meet at all until there's a vaccine. Plenty will fall somewhere in between. In such a precarious and polarizing environment, how can the church move forward in beautiful unity? You know what the answer is? It's right here in our text. This text shows us how we move forward. As we have eternal gratitude for, for our position in Christ, that I must remember that I am chosen, that I am holy, and beloved vertically. I've been forgiven. Now I look at how am I to treat my brothers. And even in this situation, we all may have different views on wearing masks. Some might say, you know, forget the mask. It's silly. It's not happening. It's going down. We're okay. But we'll, we'll wear masks because we love and care and we respect those that, are, that maybe aren't comfortable. Or we may wonder, well, you know, I don't need six feet social distance. I'm going to sit right next to my friend over here, but we're going to respect others and honor them and some of their fears. Or we may say, hey, I can't believe that so-and-so, they're not out yet. I mean, we've been together for three whole weeks and they're not here yet. But we're going to be patient with people and loving because we're unified in Jesus Christ. Paul continues on in verses 15 and 16 on this theme of unity. And we see a, a, a phrase repeated in your heart in verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Then verse 16 he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with thankfulness in your heart. Paul's commanding them here. He says he commands them with three imperatives. To rule, to be thankful, and to dwell. And as we, we look at all that God has done, as we process that and let it flesh out in our position. He's calling on us to let the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. Um, if one is coming in a relationship vertically to have peace with God through the blood of Christ that Paul talked about back in chapter 1, verse 20, if I then have that vertical peace, I am to allow that peace to flow out horizontally as I have peace with, with one another as we're in the body of Christ. I'm going to let the, the peace of Christ, I'm, I'm in a relationship with him that's impact others to rule me. It, it means to, to control. It means to, to dominate, to judge, to arbitrate, if you please, to be an umpire. 
So how I'm treating others, I'm allowed, to, I'm allowed to, all that God has done for me, I'm allowed that to, to umpire how I'm going to treat other people. I'm allowed that to rule my heart. Deep in my heart, my, my transformation has been changed. My heart defines my being. And, and I'm a new man in Christ. And we're to allow that to dictate how I'm going to live. I'm going to be operated by Christ. I'm going to be controlled by him. I'm going to be ruled by him because I had peace with him. A sweet verse in Ephesians drives us home in a, in a precious way. Ephesians 3.17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. So we have this, this relationship in Christ that, that Christ dwells in my heart as Christ is living through me deep within. I have peace with him. It's to be evident in how I treat others. It's to be evident in how that I live. Then he says, in light of all of this, be thankful. You know, it's hard to have disunity and be thankful. So as we are living in this manner as the, 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 the truth of Christ and having peace with him is ruling in my heart and I'm appreciating that gift. I'm going to be a thankful person. I'm going to be a thankful individual. We've been given this amazing gift and this grace by God that I'm going to allow to impact my, my position and how I live. May I not get over the, one, the gift that I've been given. I'm in one body. We're together. Because Christ has saved us vertically, because I have peace with him, he then commands that I'm the rule of my heart, that that is to impact my relationships, and I'm to be a thankful person. Well, how does that mean? How will I then overflow in relationships? What will the change be if Christ is, is ruling in my heart? Can I be upset with somebody over what they've done to me? If Christ is ruling my heart, if the peace and love that I have deep within is ruling my heart, will I have a situation with somebody that I'm upset? Or will I remember what a person did to me over here? But do I remember what Christ did for me back here? And I can certainly forgive them here because look what God has done for me. Thinking of verse 8, how can I harbor anger or wrath? Why am I putting that back on when I was told to put it off? when I'm to put on all remembering what Christ has done for me vertically and how I am to live. Then he says, let the peace of, I'm sorry, let the word of God, or the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He gives another command here. Let the word dwell in us. Let the word of Christ, and it's the word of Christ, maybe it's the, the gospel, maybe bro, probably broader, not just the words that Christ spoke, but it's words about Christ, which honestly is all divine revelation. And we see that in Luke chapter 24, when Christ opens up the scripture to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he opened and used the scripture all that pointed to him. So he says here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it, as we want to live out these virtues, if we want to live out the forgiveness, the peace, the unity, thankfulness, all of this flowing from a mind that's controlled by, by Scripture. I want the Word of God to just wrap itself around me and control me. It's to dwell within me. I love this word, to dwell. It actually is one of my favorite words over the years. It's to, to live in, to be at home in, to be comfortable in. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Back in the 1980s, 
um, when I was going to, going to seminary, 81 to 84, we would travel um, down to Parsippany, New Jersey on weekends, and we would stay in different people's homes. And our favorite home, hands down, um, and this one sweet family, um, people would sign up. I'm not sure why. It was, I'm sure because of Lynn, and they loved her. Um, but it would be a, a list a couple months ahead of time. I would, anyway, I'll leave it at that. Um, but this one family, the Groves, um, signed up many times, and we just were pumped when they would sign up because we loved going to their home because I felt at home in their home. We felt at home. We would get to their home, and we called them Uncle Giovanni and Aunt Joy. We had just a sweet relationship, and their teen kids. Um, they loved us, and for some reason, we loved them. Um, kick off our shoes. I would sit in the easy chair and just proceed to be absolutely spoiled. Anything I wanted in the refrigerator was always um, ours to have. And plus, he was a world-class chef, which added a lot to the excitement of going to their home on weekends. And we always made sure that we had new youth activities so we could be there all night and just enjoy them. You see the idea, though? To be at home in something, to be comfortable in something. That's what Paul is saying here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, abundantly, extravagantly. You know, I think of pastor's um, survey questionnaire that um, had this past Wednesday, and one of the questions in the survey is, what is the most common way to resist temptation? You know, I was thinking about the survey. You know, some people said consider consequences, and actually, um, that is biblical, consider the consequences, and to also um, say stay away from it, well, that's biblical to flee from it, but really the main one which the other two are off of, is Scripture. I just want Scripture that is my guide. Scripture is going to be my resource. Scripture is going to be what's dwelling in me richly. Scripture is it's comfortable. And he talks about psalms and hymns and, you know, that it that dwells deep within me. It's at home and it's permeating every aspect of my life. And it's really leading into verse 17. It's permeating my actions, my words, my thoughts. It's governing everything and all that I do. It's comfortable and it's guiding me in my life. Paul says when we live like that, when we remember who we are positionally, vertically, and it's changing us how we live practically, horizontally, when that's happening, we're going to have a life that's just going to be filled with thankfulness, you know, with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. This word thankfulness is, is an awesome word. It's the word charis. It's used 154 times in the New Testament. 129 times it's translated grace. So here he's, it's often translated grace, and he says, with grace in your hearts, we are a thankful people because we have experienced God's grace. We're a thankful people because God has changed us, just like we heard in the four testimonies. God has changed us forever we belong to him. And so that lifestyle, may I call it thanks and living, is to happen now. So we're thankful people deep in our hearts because of what God has done. So, I get to enjoy unity, not division. Why? Because identity should impact my behavior. My identity in Christ will impact my behavior for Christ. Then Paul wraps up this section, so to speak, and he says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. You know, and whatever we do, uh, whatever 
um, and everything. Same, same Greek word, one singular and one's plural. So whatever, in the singular and then in everything. Paul is just driving home the point that in every single deed, every single word, in all of our deeds, in all of our works, everything is to be done in the name of Jesus Christ and to act consistently with who He is and with, with what He wants. So to speak or act in His name is to speak and to act under the conviction, conviction of His approval. I am speaking in the name of Jesus, and, and He's reaching across the sky and patting me on the back and said, I'm doing well. Or I'm acting over here in my behavior. It's in the name of Jesus. He's reaching across and saying that, that I'm doing well. That's a tough one, isn't it? You see, it's easy to come in here, so to speak, and to sing worship songs, to gather together, and to sing praise songs, but it's a little bit harder as I allow now the peace of God to dwell deeply within, allow the Word of God to control my heart, and in worship as I submit to Him in thanks living out there and in here, <laughs> that I'm, it's, it's evident in the way I speak. It's transparent in the way I act. It's evident in the choices that, that I make. It's, it's obvious in what I'm doing. You know, a few questions. How will, how will our marriages be different? If we were to ask or plug in verse 17, God, I'm acting this way in the name of Jesus. Or as we're desiring things. Or if a husband's disappointed with a wife, and what he's about to do. I'm about to do this in the name of Jesus. Or with a wife that she, is, she thinks is the last straw. Can we say it's the last straw in the name of Jesus? Or secondly, you know, when we look at relationships in our family and friends, how, how would they be different if we were to act in the name of Jesus? I'm now, I'm now conducting myself as Jesus would act. I was sharing with a couple guys um, this afternoon, actually Dennis and, and Brent, and we were chatting. And I said, this passage I'm preaching tonight is so convicting. I, I wish that someone else, actually once I got into it, someone else could preach it. Pastor Walker, if you could have preached instead of me, I could not feel as guilty. Um, I'm saying that kiddingly, but, but seriously also. You know, that we always examine the Word of God, and it penetrates in every, every aspect of our lives. Um, young people, um, how what you do on a date would change when we ask the words, is this, this is where we state the words, I'm doing this now in the name of Jesus. Or what we're about to watch on TV or watch on the computer. God, I'm now going to spend this time in the name of Jesus. Or when people, I'm not into Facebook, but when people post things on Facebook accounts and it seems like Facebook, all that I've heard, is it's more about making yourself look big so people could say, man, I wish I had the life of so-and-so. You know, how would that change if, if we're being controlled by verse 17 in the name of Jesus? Or how would the use of our time, you know, when we come back together as a church, um, we're able to come back and worship together. How's it going to be different? Um, how would it be different if we plug in, I'm doing this activity in the name of Jesus. I'm no longer going to spend this time watching another episode or another season. You know, we're now on the 26th season of whatever. You know, I'm going to use my time for something else, God. Or how are we going to use our resources? How are we going to use our, our treasures? God, I want to use my home. Now that I'm able to talk to my neighbors, God, it's just going to be different with my neighbors because I'm doing this in the name of Jesus.
I know our time is just about done, but let me read a, uh, an illustration from an old book uh, written. It's entitled, The Passing of the Third Floor Back. And the man was, was um, giving a summary of it. Roughly the tale is of a poor class lodging house where lived a heterogeneous company of needy and seedy folk and where there was a poor, ignorant little servant girl, a good deal of a slut, and ready to sell her virtue for a worthless trinket. In the place there came one day a lodger who at once seemed to be different and who occupied the third floor back. He quickly revealed himself to have a very kind heart and way. He always had a kind word for the little slavey, usually so ignored. She almost worshipped him. The other lodgers, too, owed him much for his many deeds of helpfulness. He was always doing something for somebody, um, his kindly, sympathetic way. At last the day came for him to move elsewhere. The little maid watched him, opened eyes as he walked with his luggage to the front door. And as he turned to her with a smile and a gentle pat on the shoulder, she took her leave of him with the words, Please, are you M? Please, are you M? Are you Jesus Christ? May that be viewed of us. May all that we do and say and how we control ourselves horizontally, may my behavior be for Christ because of my identity in Christ. May, may everything change because of who we are in Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for, for your word. Thank you for his piercing, sharpening presence in each of our lives. God, we need your word continually. We need it to guide us, to direct us, to keep us from harm's way, to guide us in the, the narrow path that pleases you. God, life is so temporal. Life is so short. May we make decisions that please you. May we put on these virtues and make a difference in our world for your glory. God, may our behavior for Christ match our identity in Christ. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Lord, bless friends. Have a great week.